from LPM, Louisville Public Media. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org. Welcome to the Kentucky Author Forum, where great conversations are created. I'm Evie Clare, associate producer. Today's guest is sports writer John Feinstein. He talks about his book, The First Major, the inside story of the 2016 Ryder Cup with Mike Tirico of NBC Sports. This conversation was recorded at the Kentucky Center for the Performing Arts on September 20th, 2018. Michael. Hello, sir. Good to see you. It is good to be with you, John, and uh, good evening, everyone. We're so pleased to be visiting with you tonight here at the University of Louisville, Kentucky Author Forum. And really happy to be sitting across the table from a friend. John and I have uh, both been very fortunate because we've covered a lot of different sports, and we're sports fans at heart. So uh, this will be hopefully an hour or so of two sports fans talking and a bunch of folks who are sports fans or non-sports fans eavesdropping on the conversation. And by the end of the hour, they may know whether we know what we're talking about or not. (laughs) (laughs) Which we know the answer to that question already. You are uh, about to cross a threshold here about to author your 40th book, most of them in sports. I've yes, read 27, applaud. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> thank you. Sports fans might not know there are many kids' mysteries in there along the way, uh, some other topics, but mainly sports, uh, college basketball with the number one New York Times bestseller, A Season on the Brink about Bob Knight, some three decades ago. I can't yeah, believe that. I was 12 that. when I wrote that book, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a day that goes by that somebody doesn't ask you a Bob Knight-related question? Hardly ever. Um, and it's, it's amazing the number of people who have Bob Knight stories, both good and bad. I'll tell you why Bob Knight's a great guy. I'll tell you why Bob Knight's a terrible guy. And I say, yeah, I know. <laughs> but Either they want to share the Either stories way. with you. Sorry? They want to share those stories with you. At length. It's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> that book, I don't want to say it put you on the map. Because no, it did. You were, you were a terrific writer in your own regard at that point. But that received such national acclaim, and it also, I think, created just a new genre. The word embedded gets used with uh, coverage of war going back to Vietnam, World War II. The word embedded wasn't used in sports coverage very often, but you almost created a new avenue of embedding behind the scenes as a vehicle, an avenue to tell stories. How did that come about in your mind? And how has that changed the way you've gone about writing all these books? Well, to be honest, it, it, it really started when I was, please don't boo, an undergraduate at Duke. And <laughs> you see, there's one Duke guy here. One, he, he tweeted me and told me he was coming. I'm glad you made it. Um, <laughs> but uh, when, believe it or not, when I was at Duke, because it's so long ago, uh, the basketball team was terrible. Mm. Um, nobody had heard of Mike Krzyzewski. And my four years at Duke, uh, the basketball team finished last or tied for last in the ACC. Wow. And this is a true story. (laughs) Carolina guy. Exactly. Um, This is a true story. In 1978, the year after I graduated, Duke made it to the national championship game. They lost, I can't remember to whom. Um, (laughs) um, But at at the Friday press conference, Bill Foster, who was the coach, Mm -hmm. Uh, was asked, last year you were last in the ACC. 
And this year, you're in the final four. What changed? Well, what had changed was they'd recruited Gene Banks and Kenny Denard. But Foster was a very dry guy. And with a straight, deadpan face, he goes, well, John Feinstein graduated. And <laughs> there's 500 reporters going around, who the hell is John Feinstein? Right, exactly. I, I was the night police reporter for the Washington Post at the time. At the time. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I got sent to the final four by the sports editor, George Solomon, because I'd been a summer intern in sports. Wow. And... Uh, and, but when I was an undergrad, I, I went to Duke as a swimmer. So I, I, I hung out with a lot of the jocks, and I, I knew the, the guys on the basketball team, and I knew what went on inside the team that never got talked about or, or, or written about in sure. the newspapers or talked about on TV or radio. So when I went to the Washington Post and eventually landed back in sports, I spent four years in news, I always had this idea that if you could get inside a basketball team, because basketball was my first passion, okay. um, there was a story to be told. But th there were three coaches in the country, I thought, who you could p perhaps write a book about and somebody would publish it at Dean that Smith point. Dean Smith one of them? Dean Smith was okay. one of them. John Thompson was one of them. George he had Town. just become the first African-American coach to win a national championship sure. and was going to coach the Olympic team. And Bob Knight mm -hmm. was the third, not necessarily in that order. And I, the, among the three, I knew Dean Smith the best because I'd gotten to know him when I was an undergrad. And, and in spite of the fact that I went to Duke, he was always great to me. We had a very close relationship for many, many years. And I actually called Dean after they won the national championship in 1982. And I said, I'd like to do a book, and here's what I'd like to do. And he, and he said, let me think about it. Hmm. And he said, I want to talk to my wife, Linnea, and... Let me give it some thought. He called me back a week later. He said, I'm not ready to be as honest as you want me to be. Fascinating. But the funny part of the story was he says, I feel badly about this. Can I do something for you? Can I get you some tickets? <laughs> and I said, no, Dean, I'm okay on tickets. <laughs> now, the next guy was John Thompson, and John and Dean were very close. Yes. And John and I, we get along great now. But back then, John didn't use my name. John thought my full name was that blank, blank Feinstein. Sure. And, and John was literally the most secretive coach in college basketball. By far. He, he did not have a great media relationship with almost anyone in the country. Very few. Right. Mine was particularly bad okay. at the time. Good. And then there was Bob Knight. Mm -hmm. And Bob, for all of his brickbats thrown at the media, always had a cadre of media friends, yes. guys he liked. And, and Bob his, is very black and very white. He either loves you or hates you. I've experienced both. Um, and I had written a piece on his coaching protégés in the sporting news. And he'd written me a note about how much he liked the piece. Um, and it said, anytime you want to come out, just call. So I did a magazine piece on him before the 84 Olympics. Spent three days with him. Had total access to his team during that period. And in 1985, when he threw the chair... I was actually, because I'm such a great reporter, I was in Bloomington the day he threw the chair but didn't stay for the game. Wow. That's how great a reporter I am. One of the most famous incidents yeah. in college basketball history. I, I, Players at the free throw line, Knight slings the plastic chair across, gets thrown out, right. and does this wonderful stomp across the court and out the door at Assembly Hall. Right, and it was, of course, a huge national wow. story. And I was... I had gone out there. My boss, George Solomon, had said, Knight likes you, because Knight wasn't talking to anybody at that point. He had benched four starters for a nationally televised game, and in those days, a nationally televised game was a big deal right. uh, at Illinois. 
and um, hated Lou Henson, the Illinois coach, once said to me that Lou Henson couldn't coach lions to eat red meat. Um, <laughs> that's how much he respected Friendly, Lou Henson. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so my boss said, just go out there and knock on his door. That's what you did in those days. I mean, what it, a different it's time. funny. It, it, you, know, you, you, you would knock on doors. That's what Woodward and Bernstein did. They invented the genre. And, and Bob's still doing it uh, better than anybody. Yeah. And, uh, and I worked for Woodward for several years and learned a lot from him when I was on the Metro staff. But uh, I went and I literally knocked on Bob's door on 3.30 in the afternoon. They were playing Illinois that night, his favorite team. Uh, and he opened the door and looked at me like I'd just come back from lunch. And he said, John, would you knock on Dean Smith's door on a game day like this? And I said, probably not. <laughs> but... But he said, come on in. And he just, I, I stayed with him until game time. I went in the locker room with him before the game. After the game, they lost. Went to eat Chinese food with him after that. Spent the whole next day there. And then because I had everything I needed, I got on a plane to fly home Saturday morning. And I was sitting in the, my boss's office. It was a Saturday afternoon. It was a quiet place to write. And somebody came in and said, you better come out here and watch this. Your boy just threw a chair. <laughs> and so I had to rewrite my lead. And, but in the lead, I said, he threw a chair. There's no excuse. He lost his mind. But on a scale of 1 to 10, among the crimes being committed in college athletics, this is about a 3. Oh, and right. I would say the same thing today. Yeah. It might be a 2.5 today. And uh, Knight called me. And he said, hey, I, you know, everybody's killing me. And you at least told both sides of it. And I appreciate that. And he invited me to a dinner that he used to have at the Final Four with all of his coaches. Right. That's back in the days when the Final Four was civil and the games, the Saturday games were played in the afternoon. So, Says a sports writer who's worked on Deadline a few times. Continue on. Continue on. So, That's a different form uh, for got, a different I've time. I've got a story about that, too. But um, we got to talk Ryder Cup here. Come on. We're going to get to the Ryder okay, Cup. We've got 47 minutes and 27 seconds left. Maybe more. And, and I want people to buy the, the, the Ryder Cup book, Maybe so we'll more. get to it. <laughs> um, but so I went to the dinner. And so when I hung up with Knight, when he invited me to dinner, I thought, he's inviting me into his inner circle. Hmm. I wonder if he might be willing to let me do what I did for three days for a year. So when I went to dinner with the group after dinner, I said, hey, Bob, can I talk to you for a minute? He said, sure, come on back to the hotel room. He was rooming with the great Pete Newell, who was one of his mentors. Great coach. And, and Mike Krzyzewski was there because they were doing a clinic together the next morning. And, of course, he and Mike were together back at West Point at Army. Mike, Mike played for him at West Point and coached for him at Indiana for a year. Mm -hmm. And so they talk about the clinic, and Bob looks at me and says, what can I do for you? So I went through this crazy idea I had. And he said, have you ever written a book? I said, no. He said, do you have a publisher? I said, no, I didn't think there was much point in getting a publisher without talking to you first. He said, yeah, well, that was probably a good idea. He said, if you can get a publisher, come on out. Hmm. So Krzyzewski and I walk out the door, door closes, and he looks at me and he goes, are you out of your blanking mind? <laughs> <laughs> and, and any of you who know anything about Mike know he didn't say blanking. Right. Um, and I said, what are you talking about? I've been around him. I know what it's like. He said, no, you don't. You've been with him for three days. You don't know what it's like to spend a whole winter with him. And I, said, and, and I said, well, you played for him. He said, that's right. I needed to go to college. You've been to college. And I said, well, you worked for him. I said, that's right. I needed a job. You have a job. So I decided to try and do it anyway. Five publishers rejected the idea. Wow. Uh, and I finally got a very small advance, $17,500. Took a leave of absence from the Washington Post. Ben Bradley called me in and said, nobody gives a damn about blank and Bobby Knight. 
You're wasting your time. I said, you're probably right, Ben, but I want to try it. When the book got to number one on the bestseller list, I got a note from Bradley, which said, you got to give Bradley credit. He knows a winner when he sees one. <laughs> That's Too one good. of the reasons I love Ben. Too good. And uh, so I went out and wrote the book. And it's one of your two New York Times number one bestsellers, Season on the Brink, and a good walk spoiled golf book that we talked about was mentioned before. You've written college basketball, major league baseball, minor league baseball, uh, a book about pro basketball, a book about one incident, one play, a punch that happened in an NBA game back in the 70s. But golf, oh, the Olympics, tennis, but golf is the place you always seem to come back to. Golf and college hoops. And college basketball. Right. What is it about golf specifically that has, not just for you, but for many of the great writers. As opposed to me, right? <laughs> I said not just for you. But some of the great writers, yeah, I get it. It's fine, Mike. I'm really being nice. I can change. I know you're trying. <laughs> what provides such a rich canvas that golf seems to always produce great books, great columns, great stories? I think it starts with the fact that it's an individual sport. Mm -hmm. And tennis is a great sport to write about, too. Right. The difference being that we writers, in particular, have very little access to tennis players. Yes. When I wrote my book, Hard Courts, on the tennis tour, it was the longest year of my life because I, I still remember saying to a player named Henri Lecomte, oh, sure. who a very a good Frenchman, player, yeah. Frenchman, French Open finalist mm -hmm. one year, you know, I would, I would go up and I, I'm doing a book on life on the tennis tour. I'd like to sit down and talk to you. And the first question athletes always ask is, how long is this going to take? I thought you said, how much do I get paid? That's another one. Okay. That's another one. Um, but so he says, well, how, how long do you need? And you, you learn after a while. You lie. You don't tell the truth. Yeah. You don't say, I need two hours. So I said, half an hour. He said, what? He couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe somebody wanted to talk to him for 30 minutes. <laughs> so when uh, the, the tennis book did very well, and, and I went to my publisher and said, I'd like to do a similar book on golf. Grew up working at a golf club, small club on the eastern end of Long Island. I had a great pro who didn't teach me to play the game particularly well, as I point out to him, um, but taught me to love the game. Mm -hmm. Taught me to respect the game and, and, and the, the etiquette of the game and how hard it is to play the game. That there was, is a passion. You get connected to the yes. sport if you're exposed to it or the person who helps you learn the sport. Golf pro, uncle, dad, right. mom, whoever it is, if they introduce it to you the right way, there's a lifetime connection. The sport always calls you back at some point. The two men other than my father who were most, the most important, there were three men who were the most mm -hmm. important in my life besides my father. One was Bob Woodward, who taught me how to be a reporter. Mm -hmm. One was my high school swimming coach, who made me give up basketball because he said, you're five foot four, you're white, you're <laughs> Jewish, you're not getting a division one scholarship, but you could be a decent swimmer. Good and, advice to follow. And yeah. my golf pro. And right. I'm, well, I'm still close to all three of those men. That's awesome. Um, and, uh, but, but, so I always had a passion for golf, but someone who had tried to play and who had been around the game. And I wanted to do a book on life on the golf tour because the way I pitched it to my publisher, who was very skeptical, because this was in the pre-Tiger Woods era, right. what they called the faceless clones era. The, the, most famous, the best players in the world at that point were Nick Faldo, 
who back then nobody thought had a personality. It only came out when he got on television. Yes. Um, Nick Price, who was the nicest guy in the world and still is, um, but didn't inspire passion. And Greg Norman, who did inspire passion but couldn't win majors. Right. So we're uh, post Palmer. We're post Nicholas. Right. Tom Watson's era has Fading. come to an end. Right. So we're right in that pre-Tiger, that era where some Hall of Fame golfers but not the guys who Madison Avenue went, wow, I need a piece of this to sell. Exactly. And, and my, what I said to my editor was, golf is the hardest game mentally because it's the only sport where you can't make excuses. You don't get bad calls. Nobody tries to stop you. You know, nobody's serving a ball 120 miles an hour at you, throwing in a pitch 95, trying you to tackle defense. you, guard you. You can't play defense. Right. The damn ball just sits there. Right. And you, you either get it in the hole or you don't. And when you finish a round, when you're a pro, you finish a round, you can say, gust of wind, bad lie, right. you know, landed in a divot. You look in the mirror, you're the guy that shot 75. Right. It's you and your score in it, perpetuity. Nobody else. Nobody else. You have to play your foul balls, as Sam Snead once said to Very Ted good. Williams. Yep. And I, I just thought, from a mental standpoint, it was fascinating. Plus, unlike tennis players... Most golfers don't become stars, at least until they're in their 20s, and in many cases, not until they're in their 30s. You know, Tiger Woods was almost unique when he won the Masters at 21. It broke the mold. It broke the mold. Mm-hmm. And, but many of the golfers were guys who struggled through their 20s and get, get their card, lose their card. And, but I remember sitting down, the first interview I did for A Good Walk Spoiled was with Davis Love. And we were in a condo in Williamsburg back when they had the tournament there in July when it was one million degrees every day. In Virginia. In Williamsburg, Virginia. Yep. And, uh, and we're sitting there, and we'd been there about two hours. And I said to him, I said, how are you doing on time? And he said, well, you said you were writing a book, so I, I just blocked off the whole afternoon. Oh, God, I've died and gone to heaven. <laughs> and, and it was remarkable that most of the players got it. And they, they, they appreciated their success they understood they had to, to, to own their failures. Right. Uh, there was very little, ex- very little excuse making. There's always some. Um, and I genuinely liked them, yeah. even though I differed from most of them politically and still do. Whoa, whoa, uh, but whoa, whoa. I, this I, is a civil conversation. I, I no know. politics just, tonight. I just want to get that on the right. record. I was very proud to see the congressman with his <laughs> F rating from the NRA. Um, <laughs> yes, you should applaud for that. There... there there was a time when civil conversations meant there was no sports because sports was the passion. Right. Sports now is sports where people is the got safe angry. haven right. for a civil conversation. Now pay, people say to me all the time, keep your politics out of sports. Well, have they ever heard of Jesse Owens? Have they ever heard of Munich? I mean, politics have been part of sports forever. The Olympic but movement. Different you, subject. You've digressed, different but night. go ahead. But, uh, but I really liked them, mm-hmm. and I got great access, and the book did incredibly well. And so I remember my agent calling me, um, after the book had done what it did and said, uh, they want an I- another idea, anything golf. They wanted another golf book because publishing is a copycat industry. You talk right. about people doing books with inside access in season on the brink. Right. My editor at, at, uh, at Macmillan, Jeff Newman, mm-hmm. told me that at one point he had about 500 book proposals that started with, this is the season on the brink of. 500? Yeah. Wow, 500. He says he still has them. Um, but, but so being a copycat industry, they wanted me to write more golf. And I was thrilled to write more golf because I enjoy writing golf. And in fact, it was in 1993 
Good Walk Spoiled begins at the 1993 Ryder Cup, the last time the U.S. won overseas. And when I went there to start my research for Good Walk Spoiled, the first thing that hit me was how unique the event was. The passion, the intensity, the fans' involvement, the fact that it was a team event as opposed to an individual event. Um, and, and the book begins with Davis Love standing in the middle of the 18th fairway during what turned out to be the deciding match of that Ryder Cup, thinking that he was literally going to throw up. Yeah. He was so nervous. One, one of the fascinating things, and we'll turn to this uh, book, the first major, the inside story of the 2016 Ryder Cup, played at Hazeltine Golf Course, uh, golf club just outside of Minneapolis. The Ryder Cup is different, and the book really gives you great honesty from these golfers. And, and I've covered the tour since 97, so 20 plus years. And one of the things I find, to dovetail to your point, they're independent contractors. They represent corporate America or global corporations mm -hmm. with their logos that they wear. And they're a little more mature than the other athletes. So they tend to be some of the easiest and deepest and most intelligent interviews that you come across. Some uh, not as smart as they think they are. That's correct. <laughs> uh, a couple of passages from the book, just on the event itself, which I think is pretty interesting. It began as a friendly get-together between players from the U.S. and Great Britain. PGA of America, the urging of a golf writer, and I'm going to paraphrase here a little bit, sent a dozen American golfers to compete in the 1921 Open Championship at St. Andrews, what folks know as the British Open. One of the reasons, essentially, that the Ryder Cup started was because no Americans had won the Open. Right. They weren't playing. So to get someone to come over there and do more, because it wasn't like you hop on a plane and in five hours you're there. Right. The trip was long, so there needed to be something there to play for. And Samuel Ryder and his brother James came forward and said they'd commissioned a trophy to be awarded by the, to the winning team. Ryder was a seed salesman. That's why it's called the Ryder Cup. It has nothing to do with Ryder rentals or anything right. of the sort. Exactly. There's, that, that's, the beginning of the, that's part of the beginning of the book. It really tells the story of how this event got started. This event for, what, John, 50 years, somewhat sleepy event that, forget books, few newspaper articles, right. let alone television coverage live, existed with the Ryder no, Cup. No, there was no live television coverage. The first time the Ryder Cup was on live in the United States uh, for more than a couple hours right. was 1987, right. when it was played at Muirfield Village when the Europeans beat the Americans and danced on Jack Nicklaus's green, right. which really sort of started uh, the, the hostility mm -hmm. that, that continued to yes, build. Yes, no doubt. Um, but uh, you're right, it was, it was just a sleepy little event. It was the United States versus Great Britain and Ireland. And post-World War II, the U.S. dominated. Uh, Europe won once in 1957. There was one tie, the famous tie in 1969, when Jack Nicklaus conceded the putt to, to Tony Jacklin. On the last green, uh, the U.S. just needed uh, a half a point to retain the cup because if it's tied 14-14, Whomever has the cup retains it. You can tell it's an old school event. They didn't figure out overtime. Bonus they still time. haven't. Right. <laughs> if it's tied, if you won the thing the last time, you get to keep it. You take it. it home. There is, in many ways, there's a gentlemanly, a gentlemanly nature to the core of the Ryder Cup yeah. competition that over time has been overrun by, candidly, drunken fan behavior and rowdiness. Most of them Americans. <laughs> I hate to say it. Kiowa, Brookline. Yeah. 
Hazeltine, I thought the fans were great overall at Hazeltine. Mm -hmm. Jordan Spieth had a great description. He called the drunks the one percenters. That's right, exactly. Um, that's, really, that's in the book. And, and they were really, the, I was walking with the matches, and, and there were some really, really horrible things said. But, um, but you're right, and it, 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 was a, it was a sleepy little event. The U.S. always won. And then Jack Nicklaus, who loved the tradition of the event, yeah. went to the European PGA and said, look, this isn't even a big deal anymore. It's become hit and giggle golf. Mm -hmm. And he suggested there was a young Spanish player who had finished second in the British Open in 1976 at the age of 19 named Seve Ballesteros. Right. And Jack said he suspected there were more coming from the continent. And he said, let's make it the U.S. versus Europe. So instead of Great Britain and Ireland, it becomes Europe. Right. And that really is the seed change Absolutely. for the Ryder Cup. And if you had to put two individuals there, why this thing pivoted from nice, genuinely sleepy golf event to mega event in the sport. Jack's name needs to be mentioned. And Seve. And Seve. Absolutely. Because Jack was the one who convinced uh, both the uh, PGA of America and the uh, British PGA to make it into the U.S. versus Europe, and Seve was the one who galvanized Europe. Let's, let's stop and explain for folks who are not ardent golf fans the four majors are run by four different governing bodies. Much to the chagrin of the PGA Tour. Right, and the PGA Tour is not any one of those right. four governing bodies. The PGA of America, which runs the PGA Championship, that's the entity that oversees the U.S. portion of the Ryder Cup. So you have this bifurcated leadership and uh, corporate style that goes on with all of these events. The PGA of America truly is the home for golf professionals. If you've played golf in America, right. There's a golf pro at every course in America. That person's a member of the PGA of America. Correct. That's the group that puts on the PGA Championship and the Ryder Cup. And they don't really interact with professional golf at the tournament level. What you see on your TV on weekends, much at all. Only, at, only at the PGA Championship because right. they save 20 spots for club pros still. Exactly. It used to be 40, now it's 20. Uh, but... You're right about that, and of course that was always a big bone of contention with the tour, mm -hmm. that the PGA of America was making, once the Ryder Cup became a big event, they were making all this money off of players from the PGA Tour. Right. And there's, to this day, there's still conflict over that. But, but when Seve became part of the European team, he began to convince the other European players, we can beat these guys. And in fact, in 1983, when the U.S. won 14 and a half, 13 and a half in, in Palm Beach, uh, and it came down to the last match, Lanny Watkins hit a wedge to two feet to basically save the match for the U.S. Um, Seve, according to the other guys in, in that locker room, said, this proves we can beat them. We came to their, their golf course, and we could have beaten them. We're going to win next time. Well, they did at the Belfry in 1985, and since then they pretty much dominated the Ryder Cup. Seve Ballesteros gets mentioned so often. Um, the impact that Tiger Woods had on golf is hard to match in this half century. Right. Seve had a unique influence on the sport. The continent of Europe, European golf as a whole, the style of play, and um, sadly, he's been gone for more than half a decade, yet his name is invoked all the time. Yeah. His memory is brought up. Uh, you cannot tell the history of the Ryder Cup without saying on the golf course and in the team room right. what was so important. And John, it's a good place to stop here and talk about the dynamics. Because as you said, they're individual athletes, yet they come together as a team for this one week every other year. 
They don't get directly paid to do this. No, one, their charities get, get some right. money, $150,000. They feel this pressure. You said before, guys feel like they have to throw up in the fairway. It's that kind of pressure. So it's a unique subset Absolutely. of emotions and setting. And you enjoyed, I enjoyed so much, you taking us into the team room of how these guys who are individuals bond together for a week when then a couple months later they'll be trying to beat each other a couple months later, events. the next week. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the biggest compliment I got on the book was from Rory McIlroy, who tweeted that reading it, he felt like he was in both team rooms. That's cool. And that made me feel great. And That's Rory true. was a main reason why I could make people feel like they were in the European team room. But uh, it is unique. because Ian Poulter, who's one of the great Ryder Cup players, had the best description because for a long time, the Americans just weren't that close. They weren't that bonded. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that Phil and Tiger, who are now BFFs because they can make money off of each <laughs> other, didn't speak to one another. Hal Sutton tried to play them together in 2004, right. and they didn't say a word to each other for 36 holes and lost twice. Let me read to you Ian Poulter from page 46 of the book. There's a myth out there that everyone on Europe's team has always been best friends. We're not. Some guys are close. Other guys get along okay. Other guys don't really like one another all that much. But when we get in that room for that one week every two years, any issue between us goes away. We leave them outside the door, and they stay there until the week's over. That's pretty cool. And that, in a lot of our minds, is why the European team had mm -hmm. so much success over the last 10 Ryder Cups. I, I think it was a major part of it. Now, the younger Americans, the, the guys who are now the, the important members of this team, Patrick Reed, Ricky Fowler, uh, Jordan Spieth, Justin Thomas, who will play for the first time this year, who's from Louisville. Mm -hmm. um, those guys grew up watching the U.S. lose the Ryder Cup. Right. And they grew up saying, wait a minute, we want to be part of winning Ryder Cup teams. We don't want to just be on the team. We want to win. And... It, be, it, it became a, a hugely important event to all of them, whereas when Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods first started playing, it was something you did more or less because it would hurt your PR to refuse to re represent your country. Hmm. And, 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 and particularly with Tiger. Tiger more than Phil? Tiger more than yeah. Phil. T um, Tiger's Ryder Cup record is 13, 17, and 1, which compared to the rest of his record is ridiculous. Right. Uh, David Faraday, um, who has more good one-liners than anybody on the planet, uh, once was describing Tiger during a Ryder Cup match, and he said, on his report card, Tiger's kindergarten teacher wrote, does not play well with others. <laughs> and that has changed. And a lot, it, yeah. And, and uh, Phil, who was very candid with me in this book, I think, oh. said that he... He's the star of the book to me, it, in well, many ways. in some ways, in yeah, ways, because yeah. he was so much involved with the creation of that Ryder Cup task force when he you know, went after Tom Watson we'll at Glen Eagles. Yeah. But um, he said that when Earl Woods died in 2006, you could see a gradual, gradual softening of Tiger in his approach to other players, that he no longer felt his father looking over his shoulder saying, they're all the enemy. They're not your teammates, even if you're in the same room for a week. You give away no secrets. You are an individual. And in 2016 that reached a peak, interestingly, when Tiger Woods was not playing, right. when he was a vice captain, to the point where he was so into the preparation that he was calling guys on the phone. Davis Love said it got to the point where he'd see Tiger's number come up, and he'd say, I'm not taking the call, I haven't got an hour. <laughs> Nobody and, does and, that, And, do and Brant Snedeker <laughs> said 
that he was on the phone with Tiger one day and Tiger says, well, you should play foursomes and who should you play with in four ball and where do you want to go in the singles lineup? And finally he said to him, Tiger, I got to go. You need a hobby. <laughs> and, and but that, that's such an incredible change. It's, a, it's 180 degrees. So, so the, the contrast here is pretty interesting. You were talking about Ian Poulter and how the European side comes together. Maybe my favorite quote in the book, Poulter talking about European team players from the past. Quote, or this is another player spinning off of Poulter's comment, excuse me. Quote, we'd all be pals all week long. Then it was over. We'd go back to thinking Colin Montgomery. I can Monty, tell you now, it's, this is Poulter talking. We'd go back to thinking Monty was a pain in the rear, <laughs> although he didn't say rear. But that told you what they did for one week coming yep. together. And the U.S. team just didn't do that because of Tiger and Phil. And maybe because of this connection, it changed a little bit. Go back to Davis Love as the captain for the 2016 team. We'll focus our time here on the real crux of the book, and that's the 2016 Ryder Cup. The struggling U.S. side ends up victorious. Davis Love is the captain for the second time. You mentioned this task force that came together. Uh, Valhalla here in Louisville in uh, 2008, the United States with uh, our friend Paul Azinger as the captain came up with a system that seemed to work. Uh, based on the Navy who SEALs. Did, who did not play in that Ryder Cup, by the way? Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods? Because he was injured. Yeah. So go, go back to the Navy SEALs concept of mm. why 2008, Valhalla, Louisville, Navy SEALs all brought the U.S. a rare victory in this stretch of Ryder Cup suffering. Well, Azinger uh, watched a special on Navy SEALs, mm -hmm. and, and a lot of it was about how they were broken into three- and four-man teams. And I don't think they were called pods, but they were three- right. and four-man units that work together and it gave him the idea of putting his players into as it turned out four-man units and assigning a vice captain to each of the three pods and he also allowed because the, the three players three three and two there were eight guys picked on points he said you tell me who you want in your pod when he was making the captain's picks so we get the players were felt like they were part of the the, the decision making they got the guys they wanted uh to play with and the u.s played well now the europeans will tell you that nick Faldo was the worst captain in history um that, that he didn't even know how to spell some players names uh or pronounce them uh but the u.s played great at valhalla won easily yes and everybody said, that's great. And that Friday here in Louisville was incredible. The energy was amazing. Right. I was lucky much enough. Much like Hazeltine. Much like Hazel, exactly. Right. I was going to get to that. It reminded me of that. I was lucky enough to be working with Faldo and Azinger. The three of us were the three-man golf commentary team for ABC. So I had that entire year before the run-up, one would say, hey, look at this. Look at, look at this sketch I have here for these uniforms. And the other guy would go, hey, look what we're going to do over here. And they so were you kind of saw both sides of it, yeah. and Azinger connected with his players. Right. Uh, I, th I think Nick would love to go back and do it differently again. I'm sure he would. But that was the only U.S. US success then. They lose in 10, they lose in 12, they lose in 14. Right. Now, after 2014 and the loss, and Phil Mickelson makes some critical comments of Tom Watson, who was a captain for the second time, the players who have the most ability, the most star power on the U.S. side come together to change the future path of the U.S. Ryder Cup. It's called a task force. It got changed to a Ryder Cup committee. What impact has that had on the U.S. and the Ryder Cup? Well, basically what, what happened after the 2014 debacle at Glen Eagles where we got waxed. The U.S. got waxed 16 and a half, 11 and a half. And as you mentioned, Mickelson and Tom Watson didn't get along. 
And a lot of it was because Tom benched Phil and Keegan Bradley all day on Saturday. He didn't think they were playing well. He had, the hardest time for a captain is Saturday morning because you have to put in your Saturday afternoon lineup before the matches are over and, and things can change in that period. So you might be watching, anticipating it's going to end up this way and it, it might end a different way. Right, and that happened to Europe on Saturday at Hazeltine because uh, Rafael cabrera Bayo and Sergio Garcia rallied from three down with four holes to go to have their match with Jordan Spieth and Patrick Reed. And Darren Clark had already put in the lineup sitting Cabrera Bayo out that afternoon. And Sergio and couldn't believe it. Sergio was stunned. Right. And went, wait, wait a minute, we just tied their best team. Right. And, and we're not going out again? But, um, uh, it, it, and so Phil was mad at Watson and went after him in the press conference. If you ever watch that press conference, it is beyond awkward. It's uncomfortable. Very. And watch. if you look at Hunter Mahan's face sitting next to Mickelson, while Mickelson is talking, he wants to dig a hole <laughs> and burrow into it and get the hell out of there. We should, we should tell everyone, if you haven't been in one of those, which most of you haven't, haven't seen it, all the players in the Ryder Cup, after the, the Ryder Cup's over on Sunday, and they're all up on one long day. So everyone's sitting there, and you have to kind of hide your face. And the, for the losing team, it's now torture. you've lost as a team. It's torture. And it's really hard. And at this venue... This location, Mickelson kind he, of goes into why the Tom Watson captaincy didn't connect. We with had this group. no input. We had input with Azinger, and 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 I know Tom very well. Um, I, I was close friends with his his caddy Bruce Edwards, who died of ALS in 2004. I'm going to stop you there a second because not only were you close friends with Bruce, you still to this day have an event that has raised a lot of money in Bruce's memory on behalf of ALS. Right. And you should be lauded and Thank applauded you. for and Mike has what played you've done for that. So. Thank you. But be, be, because Tom and I are involved in that event every year, we're close. Hmm. And uh, so I can tell you that, that Tom wanted to take Mickelson out back after that was over and beat the hell out of him. Um, but, you know, he sat there with a the clenched jaw. But right, whether Phil was right or wrong, and I th think he was wrong to bring it up then, because, it, for one thing, it took away from Europe's victory. Right. You're, you know, people weren't talking the next day about how well Europe played. They were talking about Mickelson and Watson. You, go, you do it a week later, or you, you go to the PGA of America, and you say, hey, this is what was wrong, and this is what we should do. But, rightly or wrongly, it did bring about this task force, which was Ted Bishop's idea. Who Former was head of the PGA President of, of the PGA, who was deposed before the end of his... his it's a long story. You but it was his idea... And the most important thing they did was they put five players on it. Players had never had any input into who the captain was, into what, what was going to be for dinner on a given night. So Davis was on it, Jim Furyk was on it, Mickelson was on it, Woods was on it. It was actually six players, Ricky Fowler and Steve Stricker. Right. And it became apparent to Davis as the first meeting was going on that they were going to ask him to be the captain. And there was a break, and he wasn't there because he was homesick, and he called the other five players. And he said, I know they're going to ask me to do this. I'm only doing it if all five of you commit to doing anything I ask you to do. This is Davis Love asking these other players right. if you're going to come back and be captain. Page 176 of your book, Davis Love. I asked Tiger to commit to giving me 100%. I never dreamed he would dive in the way he has. And John alluded to before. Woods constantly texting, texting him and calling four months before the matches, putting together hypothetical teams for Friday and Saturday. For those of us who've covered Tiger for years, 
it was stunning. It was stunning to me. To see that whole thing. Yeah. Tiger, who was an individual, not giving away any of his secrets, now became the big brother to everyone yep. on the team. And that changed the dynamic, I think, significantly for the Ryder Cup. It absolutely did. And, you know, when Davis first started telling me this, because I was interviewing everybody along the way as we're going toward Hazeltine, I'm thinking, Davis is the nicest guy on earth. Yes, I mean, he, he really is. Under the picture of gentle man in the dictionary is Davis's picture. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's saying it. But then the players start telling me this, right. that he's on the phone all the time. And then the stories about him in the team room. And, and, and he was assigned to Patrick Reed, um, Jordan Spieth, Brant Snedeker, and Matt Kuchar, and, and how hard he worked with the four of them, and how he was the one, because Davis was going to sit Kuchar and Reed out Saturday afternoon because he thought they needed a rest, and Tiger said, they're big boys. You send them back out there. And you might remember, Saturday afternoon was where the matches turned around, and they specifically turned around when Reed holed out from the sixth fairway for an eagle, mm -hmm. and the place went crazy. Yeah. I mean, you could be sitting here in Louisville and here, here that year without TV. Yeah. And, I mean, it was, it was like a sonic boom. And the funny story about that is that Jordan and, and Reed couldn't decide whether to go high five or low five. Right. So they end up going mid five. Yeah. And Reed hit Jordan so hard he hurt his wrist. Yeah. Jordan couldn't feel his wrist on the seventh tee. He bunted a tee shot off the seventh tee because he was still, he had the stinger going on. And Jordan said to me afterwards, he says, the first time I ever got injured by another player on the golf course. And I ran that line by Patrick, and he said, well, Jordan injured me that day, too. I said, how? He said, I had to carry him on my back for 18 holes. <laughs> Golfers are the worst celebratory athletes on planet Earth. Totally. You watch golfers try to high-five with caddies, and when they have adrenaline going through their body, it's... Embarrassing. There's not a golfer alive who wouldn't have played another sport if he couldn't, including Tiger Woods, <laughs> if he could have. Maybe they all want to be. You mentioned Tiger. We've mentioned Phil several times. Let's face it. Those two guys are the two who get people to come to the TV. They get people to come to the events when they're involved. Tiger more than anybody. No, no, no doubt. Yeah. More than anyone. Yeah. There's an electricity about them. They, uh, look, the, the golf Mount Rushmore has many faces that could go on there, depending on the generation. Tiger and Phil are this generation's entries. You always had Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus, and the relationship was always talked about and questioned and all of that stuff. And as everyone gets older, they seem to get along better. Yeah, no, quite. Mike Krzyzewski and Dean Smith. Exactly. Great example. You know, age, age brings reality a lot closer. You have this very fascinating quote in here from Phil Mickelson, page 178 of the book. I think Tiger's just like me on this. He doesn't like to lose. He's not the same guy he was all those years ago when everything he'd been taught by his dad said, don't give any of your secrets away. Now he's willing to share pretty much anything he thinks will help us win. That window into the relationship of the two, now you understand why they both push so hard. Why we might see them as a partnership in the 2018 Ryder Cup. No, which we is, won't. I said might. No, we create won't. Create some drama out there. As we sit here, this is a week before the Ryder Cup's being played in Paris. It's why we'll see them do a primetime event a uh, pay-per-view event, I should say. Yeah, and there's not enough money they can pay me to watch, by the way. Thanksgiving weekend <laughs> in Las Vegas. They have joined hands for corporate reasons, for right. financial reasons, but they also understand what pushed them 
in many ways might be the same thing. They were more similar mm -hmm. than different, and they're just realizing that. Well, and that's what happens, mm -hmm. you know, w w with the elite of the elite in any sport, whether it's in coaching or playing or whatever, is you understand that that guy is the only guy who can come close to really understanding who you are and how you got to be who you are. Right. And, you know, I talk about Dean Smith and Mike Krzyzewski. I mean, they couldn't stand one another for years. And then Mike woke up one morning and said, wait a minute, I've become Dean. <laughs> and he realized it was a good thing. Right. That, that, he was a, that he was a great coach, that he sure. cared about his players, and that he did the right things in life. And that's what, to me, Dean Smith embodied that more than any I ever met in basketball hmm. um, and the line I always quote from Dean is you know Dean was involved I, I know I'm digressing but give me no, a minute. no no go ahead Dean was involved in desegregating restaurants in Chapel Hill right. in 1958 and nobody knew about it until I interviewed his his uh, minister in 1981 for a story in the Washington Post and he told me the story and I went and looked nobody had ever written it so I went back to Dean I said tell me about that night when you, he went into a segregated restaurant with an African-American member of his church and basically dared them not to serve them. And they did serve them because he was an assistant basketball coach in North Carolina. Not Dean Smith, he was an assistant coach, but they served him. And I said, tell me, he said, who told you that story? And I, and I said, I said you, 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 Reverend uh, Seymour did. And he said, I wish he hadn't told you that. And I said, Dean, you should be proud of that. And he just said, John, you should never be proud of doing the right thing in life. You should just do the right thing. Hmm. And if those aren't words yeah. to live by, Dean Smith. I don't know what uh, That one story is, Dean. Let, let, me, uh, let, let me hit on four or five names who are key to the story of the 2016 Ryder Cup. Uh, Darren Clark was the captain of the European mm -hmm. side. In 2006, his then wife Heather passed away after a second bout with cancer. Um, he played in that Ryder Cup. It's still because one of the most she asked him to. Right, just, just before she died. Just weeks after she passed, it's one of the most emotional first tee moments of any Ryder Cup. Five years later, he wins the British Open, the the Open Championship, and then five years after that, 2016, he's the captain of the European team going up against this U.S. Mm. side. So you got a chance to spend a lot of time with somebody who all of us who've been around golf really like a lot. Yep. What did you learn about Darren Clark through this book? Well, the fascinating thing about Darren, Darren is, is one of those Northern Irishmen who become important in golf. Darren Clark, David Faraday, Rory McIlroy. Um, and, and Darren uh, worked as a bartender uh, during the Troubles and, and tells a story about getting a phone call one night saying, get everybody out, there's a bomb. And in, in, in Northern Ireland, in those days, you didn't fool around. No. You just got out. Exactly. He said that the, 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 the bar blew up 15 minutes later um, and that he re found out later from the police the bomb had been sitting right where he was working for about four hours. Um, and the clubhouse of the, the course where he grew up was blown up four times. Uh, so it, it shows you why I, I think Rory and, and, and David, both of whom I consider myself close to, uh, have a completely different perspective on golf and on life mm. than most of the athletes that, that I've met. And Rory didn't grow up during the Troubles, but David did, as yeah, did fair. Darren. Yep. And, um, and, and they, they see life differently. Uh, that it's, it's not, they don't take it for granted, let's right. put it that way. And for Darren, he went through, as you mentioned, his wife Heather dying of cancer. She'd been sick twice for five years. And the most amazing story that he told me um, about that 2006 Ryder Cup, which was three weeks after Heather died. And he wasn't sure, even though she wanted him to go, he wasn't sure he could handle right. it. 
And you know, at the opening, the opening ceremonies are different every year. But at that opening ceremony, the way it was the players and wives or, or partners were supposed to walk in was it was partner, player, player, partner. From the US and the European side. Yeah, team. European, European, together, US, US. Right. So four together. And obviously Darren didn't have a partner. He didn't have his wife. And he was paired with Phil and Amy Mickelson. I get choked up when I tell this story. It is an amazing story. And uh, as the music started and, and everybody was supposed to start walking in, Amy Mickelson walked around Phil, stood in between Phil and Darren, and took both their hands and walked in in between the two of them. And when Amy was diagnosed with breast cancer four years later, the first phone call Phil got was from Darren Clark yeah. saying, anything you need. I've been there. You know, you tell me what you need. And, of course, Darren and Phil have always been on opposing Ryder Cup sides, but they're the best of friends. And Davis tells, told a great story about the tradition is on Sunday night that the teams get together. After it, the Ryder Cup After it's done. all over. Yep. And usually the losing team goes to the winning team's um, uh, team room. The, the one exception to that was in 2012 when the Americans were too devastated after Medina to go. But <laughs> Davis went to represent the U.S. team and toast the Europeans. But Davis said as they were sitting there at 3 o'clock in the morning, Darren and Phil are sitting with one another telling stories. And, and he sat there thinking, this is what Sam Ryder wanted when he started this event 90, almost 90 years ago. Right. He wanted intense competition, great golf, and then great camaraderie what it was over and, and when it was over. And I think Darren and Phil kind of personify that. Remember that uh, closing ceremony, post-party, the after-party, if you will. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Rory McIlroy, you mentioned a few times, will certainly, health given, lead the European next generation of the Ryder Cup. Right. The passion of it, the spine of uh, Seve Basteros, Jose Mariola Thopel, the Darren Clarks, Lee Westwood, who's been such a big stalwart for the European side. Polter. Ian Poulter, who we quoted a few times, Rory will be that next guy. Perhaps for the U.S. it'll be Jordan Spieth, young, talented, mature way beyond his years. No question. Uh, so Jordan Spieth in this 2016 Ryder Cup gets up and makes a speech. I'll read you a part of it, then let John talk about Jordan Spieth. Because uh, John said, this is great, that Jordan really almost remembered it verbatim, pretty close to what he said. He gets up in front of his teammates and says, I just want you guys to know that even though it's only my second Ryder Cup, I've played with all you guys quite a bit. I've played with everyone on the European team a good deal too. I feel like I know your games, I know their games. Here's what I think. We're better than they are. We're just better players. I believe we can win all the matches, not just win the cup, win all the matches. There's no reason we can't go out tomorrow morning and sweep them 4-0. Which they did. That morning, exactly. But that's a second year guy in a room with Mickelson, Woods is a vice captain, Davis Love a captain for the second time, Furek, Kuchar, the who's who of American golf for the last 20 years is in the room, and here's the kid who's in for the second time, and he gets up and says something like that. How much of a window into who Jordan Spieth is is that paragraph? And Mickelson said to him that was the most important moment of the week hmm. because it was Jordan saying, okay, I understand I'm only 22. I understand this is only my second Ryder Cup. But I know I have to lead. I have to be the leader in here and on the golf course. And they went out first, Patrick and, and, and Jordan, the next morning and, and beat Rosen Stenson, who have been Europe's best team. And that started the ball rolling towards that 4-0 sweep. Um, Jordan's one of those guys. He's, he's now 25, 
oh my God, he's ancient. Old. Um, uh, who, the first time I met him, he was 19. And I, I remember thinking as I walked away, I talked to him briefly, but he's not 19, he's 35. Right, yeah. Uh, I mean, he sounds like he's 35 years old when, it, when, when you talk to him. And he's mature, he's smart, he gets, he gets it. Um, he, he has a temper. And he understands he has a temper and, and, you know, takes it out on his golf ball more than anybody else or anything else. But he, w- he played a key role. And just as you said, Rory McIlroy took the leadership of the European team because he knew Poulter wasn't there. Um, um, my, uh, Donald wasn't there. Uh, Westwood was not playing well. Keimer was not exactly. playing well. Uh, Danny Willett was dealing with that whole issue, which we don't have time to get into because of his brother's um, tongue-in-cheek piece right. in a magazine a couple days before the Ryder Cup started. And that's why Rory was so emotional out there because he was basically saying to his teammates, let the crowd come after me. I'll take it. I can handle it. And that was an, uh, he was one of the reasons, he was the main reason Europe actually had a chance to win. If mm-hmm. he'd been able to pull that match out, with Reed, which was the most intense golf match I've yeah. ever been around. Let's get to that. Because yeah. that fascinating. we've both been around many great championship sporting events. And what always intrigues me, what always brings me back with great interest and passion for sport is that when the moment's really big, most of the athletes perform at their best. That's why they they're great. They don't freeze exactly. They don't yeah. freeze under the pressure of the people, the magnitude of the accomplishment that they can achieve if they succeed. Sunday at that Ryder Cup, uh, I remember we came on the air and I was standing right in front of the first tee on NBC. I couldn't hear a thing. It's so loud on the first tee. People are screaming. They've been singing. They've been drinking. They've been there for hours. Drunk at 8.30 in the morning. Yes. Yeah. And it starts. And then they go on. And now you're playing one-on-one, singles matches. So much pressure. It's, It's all on you to get your point. Everyone plays. Nobody sits. The matches that were played on that day in front of 50,000 people, too many for a golf course, but way too many. It was packed and it was tense and it was awesome. Patrick Reed played Rory McIlroy. The eight holes were great, but what's the stat? McIlroy birdies holes five through Rory eight? Rory birdied five, six, seven, and eight and lost ground because Reed went eagle, birdie, birdie, birdie. And, and the eighth hole was where it all came together in, in a, a tsunami type moment. And I was lucky enough to be standing from here to the second row away okay. from Rory. Rory makes 25-foot birdie putt. Matt Kuchar was playing 11th. He's still in the clubhouse because they were out first. And he said, he, he said, quote, he thought that Rory was going to go full Hulk. <laughs> like that. It went crazy. It went crazy. Yeah. Pointing at the crowd, shushing him. And Patrick turns around and makes his putt. Yeah. And I, I, literally you could not hear yourself think Nuts. at that moment. And Patrick turns and he points at Rory. And I'm thinking, holy cow, this is going to be WrestleMania here. Yeah, like, like uh, seriously, uh, for, really? a minute, for a minute, I'm thinking these guys are going to go after each yeah, other. Yeah, because he's pointing at right. him. And, and, and Rory, God bless him, walks over and goes like this, great putt. Fist bump. Yeah. And as they're walking, it's a long walk from the eighth green to the ninth tee. As they're walking, Rory, because Patrick started the shushing thing in Scotland right. with the crowd over That's there. Right. And he had shushed the American crowd. And Rory said to Patrick, you know the most sincere form of flat, uh, flattery is imitation. And I'm not sure Patrick completely got it, but he went, yeah, cool, man. You know, <laughs> that, that moment was maybe the end of the best stretch of Ryder's, Ryder Cup singles golf. Right, they turned human after that. You, so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They, did, they couldn't they match drained. that emotion after that, and the right. match tailed off. The match, 
a little bit farther behind didn't tail off. Sergio Garcia and Phil Mickelson, granted the whole locations were accessible, but the pressure was intense. And they hate each other. Exactly. Well, <laughs> they don't like each other. They, Keith Jackson said it best. These folks just plain don't like one another. Better. Yeah. They combined for 19 birdies in their match. 63, they both shot. It was right. one of the most incredible matches you will ever... That probably will go down as the best singles match in terms of performance right. in the history of the Ryder right. Cup, but oddly overshadowed, overshadowed by the highlight moments of that right. day. Right, and part of it was the intensity of those first eight holes, but also because it was the first match out, right. and Rory had to win for Europe to have a chance. And when Patrick pulled the match out, one up on 18... Basically, it was downhill from there for the U.S. So the, the Ryder Cup is a, a very modest trophy. Yes, it is. 27 inches. It, it, it's not really all that big a deal. You're not going to make 10, 15, 20 million dollars when you're the member of the winning Ryder Cup team. So what does it mean and why is it uh, something that's so rich? You have 300 pages of a terrific book that uh, sucks golf fans or non-sports fans alike in. Uh, let me read you this last, uh, last graph here and you can expand on this. Tiger Woods, there's a party going on afterwards, a celebratory party. Tiger calls over a few of the players, the guys who were in his, his four pod, guys. His, four, his guys. four guys. This is Tiger who didn't play in the 2016 Ryder Cup, and he says this to them in John's book. You'll never be with this exact same group of people this way again. You need to enjoy every second of it and savor the memories. Then he paused, and Tiger got a little bit emotional. After we won 1999 at Brookline, I was exhausted, left the party about 10.30, went up to my room to bed. About midnight, somebody started pounding on my door. It was Payne Stewart. He said, you need to get your butt back downstairs. I told him I was tired. He said, to hell with that. You never know if you'll ever have a night like this again. Remember the 99 comeback for the U.S. That was the dramatic comeback moment that Sunday. Tiger continued. Payne said, you never know if you'll ever have a night like this again. And I know you'll never have another night like this with this group of people. He wasn't leaving me out. I went back downstairs. I can't tell you how glad I am that I did. Payne and what died makes that five so weeks significant? later. Yep. Yeah. And, Payne dies five, five weeks, weeks later. later. Yeah. And John, that, that gets me to uh, a, a good place to get a final thought on why this event is so significant, why it matters so much. The title of your book is The First Major. Right. Uh, people might say the first major is the Masters. Yep. For many American-born players, it's the U.S. Open. It's right. our national championship. Right. For those around the world, the Open is the first major championship started in 1860. Yep. If you're the son of a PGA professional, if it's so close to you, the PGA will have a significance. Why, in your mind, is the Ryder Cup worthy of the title of the first major? Because there's four of the others. They're all the same. They're different, but they're the same. They're all 72 holes, metal play, and somebody wins and makes a, a hell of a lot of money. Right. This is, as you said, it's not for money. You are representing your teammates, which is very important to the players, and you're representing your country. Um, when Paul McGinley was captain in 2014, he said he went to each player and said, you're not playing for Europe. You're playing for your country. You're playing. He said to Martin Keimer, you're playing for all your friends you grew up with in Dusseldorf who are going to be watching you. Mm because you're representing them. And that's the way all the players feel now. It wasn't always that way, but it is, it is an event they desperately want to be a part of. Rory McIlroy said that the, the best thing in golf for him is playing in the Ryder Cup. He said the second best thing is playing in the, playing in the Ryder Cup and winning. The second best thing is playing in the Ryder Cup and losing because you're part of the Ryder Cup. 
but he said, I don't want to do it again. Hmm. I didn't enjoy it wow. in 2016 because the first three times he played, they won. And there, there is, an, like I said, there is an intensity, there's a passion to the Ryder Cup. There's a genuine sense of camaraderie at the Ryder Cup that you can't feel in an individual sport at any other point. And by the way, anybody who tells you the President's Cup, seriously, I mean, that's <laughs> like comparing the Masters to your club championship. Um, but we have a heck of a club championship in Michigan where we well, play out there. Tariq, Tariqo's club championship is like the President's Cup. Um, <laughs> but it is unique. And, and yeah. those sports events that are unique are the best ones. Uh, what's next to the John Feinstein hit list here? I'm glad you asked, Mike. I have a book that just came out this week, uh, last week, excuse me, I lose track of the weeks, uh, called The Prodigy. And it's about a 17-year-old kid who has, a, it's fiction, uh, who has a chance to win the Masters. And because he is so talented and so gifted, he's being pushed by, among others, his father, um, an agent, shoe company reps to turn pro right after the Masters. And this is fiction? This is fiction, but with a lot of real people. And it's, right. <laughs> okay, a lot, of real, a lot of real people appear as themselves. Players, Rory McIlroy, Phil Mickelson, Zach Johnson, okay. Dustin oh, Johnson, Matt Kuchar. Huh. Um, and, but there are a lot of people who uh, are, have fictional names, but you may very well recognize. And cool. in fact, one of the characters describes, the, the prodigy's name is Frank Baker. Uh, his father was a big baseball fan, so he named him after Home Run Baker. Mm -hmm. But his, he describes his father as wanting to grow up to be Earl Woods, um, which is a very mixed sort of thing. Sure. Um, but it was a lot of fun to write. I've been to the Masters 27 times, so I'm able to, I think, describe what it's like to be there, what yeah. it's like to be on the grounds during, during the week, uh, what the Masters is about, what the green jackets are about, which they may not like. Um, and it has, I will say this, it has a real surprise ending. Okay. It's called The Prodigy, and it's just now out. And I have a book coming out in November on playing quarterback in the NFL. And I worked with a bunch of different quarterbacks. One of them, Ryan Fitzpatrick. How about that? Who's off to a good start at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Good start. And then what, what book comes out in December? Uh, the, Mike, the Mike Tirico story. That's, no, and that's a good place to end our evening. Uh, you have uh, been an admired writer from afar. Uh, we've had the chance to cross paths and not work together. We have the chance to cross paths and work together. Uh, we always admire your storytelling ability, your connection with athletes, how you take us places in sports that we haven't been and make us feel like we're right in the middle of it. You have a, a great way to tell a story and connect with all of us, uh, just guys who want to be in the locker room at some point but never got there. And it's great to call you a friend, and this was a cool hour. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, and thank you. The Kentucky Author Forum is produced by Mary Moss Greenbaum with support from the James Graham Brown Foundation, Brown Foreman Corporation, the Humana Foundation, and the University of Louisville. The Kentucky Author Forum podcast is produced by Louisville Public Media. Our audio engineer is Brad Yost. For more information, please visit KentuckyAuthorForum.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm Evie Clare. Thanks so much for listening. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. 
and Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org. Thank you.